Well, this time I want to turn your attention back to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. Hebrews 9 is where we are. And this sermon is the beginning of uh, a section that will lead us to the end of chapter 9. I don't know how many sermons we will take to get there. I'm trying to just sense the leading of the Holy Spirit as we move through the text. Um, I have prepared several verses, but we'll see how far we get. The title is called The Shedding of Blood, The Shedding of Blood. So we are speaking in terms of the cross of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to begin by asking you a simple question. How meaningful is the shed blood of Christ to you? Forgiveness comes at an incredible cost. And when meaningful depth in understanding of your full forgiveness takes root, you know it. Whether you've been forgiven interpersonally with people where you've done something wrong and there's forgiveness, that's exhilarating, right? But Think of it in terms of being forgiven by the Lord of all your sins. All of your sins forever forgiven by the shed blood of Christ. The blood shedding of Christ has given you full forgiveness. Does that matter to you today? How bold are you concerning your forgiven status? Martin Luther was called an antinomian, which means he, it was a wrong category to cast him as, but he was so cavalier about grace and he was flying in the face of the Roman Catholic Church at that time as an Augustinian monk. And he's saying, listen, we're not saved by law. We're saved by grace. Now he still believed in obeying scripture. But he was so cavalier about grace and about forgiveness and about it's forever and my sins are gone that he was sort of cast as being insane for grace. And I think we need to be tapping into grace in that way where we understand we are fully forgiven. Romans 6, 1 and 2 is where Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He's trying to head off a temptation at the past because the Romans, as an early church, understood grace at such a level that they might be tempted to assume that being saved and being fully forgiven means you can just sin anyway. Well, we don't want to do that, but we want to be strong in grace. We want to be in a Understanding of Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? The law of the spirit of the life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death, right? We're free. We're set free. We're not ever going to be condemned. Now, people who are under that no condemnation status have a changed heart, so they're not going to want to sin. They're not going to want to abuse grace. But we need to live in the ocean of grace that's been given to us. We're not condemned. We're never going to be condemned. So how bold are you concerning your forgiveness? How confident are you regarding full forgiveness? Let me reverse the question. Do you 
worry about some past sin that occurred in your lifetime? Is there a sin haunt in your life? It's another way to test whether or not you're living in light of your forgiveness. Forgiveness. Our culture will say, you need to forgive yourself. You've heard that for what you've done. And that it would be unhealthy to believe that you can't forgive yourself. And if you can't forgive yourself, then you can never move on in your life. You can never heal. You've heard this. Culture says, of course you can do this. God's word says, no, actually you can't forgive yourself. But there is someone who can. Jesus Christ can. And for every Christian, he has... So whatever you've done, he's forgiven you, not by works. We're not saved by works. Works don't work, okay? You can't obey your way to grace. It's grace that's been given to you. Jesus was offered is the language of Hebrews 9, and we'll get to that in a few weeks. He offered himself. So look at, skipping ahead in our paragraph here, we're going to look at Hebrews 9. We're going to look at 15, verses 15 to 22, but look at verse 22. Let's go to the end of our kind of block here and think for a second. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You know what that means in reverse? Because of the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sins. To flip that on its head. So we don't have to worry about our sins. We need to let our cares go and our freedoms are here now to enjoy. Chris Tomlin's song that we sing, my chains are gone, I am set free. My God, my savior has ransomed me. So when will Christ's bloodshedding become meaningful to you? Well, let's try to make it meaningful to you through our paragraph this morning. Start at verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Stop there. At first reading on the face, you might say this is pretty difficult just to understand, just to airdrop right into Hebrews 9 and say, I get what's going on is a little bit of a tall task, but you need to understand this through the mindset of a first century new believer who's of Jewish descent, a Jew perhaps who was under the first covenant, under the law, who was used to sinning and then dealing with it through the ceremonial system once a year on the day of atonement through sacrifices regularly given. This is how his or her sins were dealt with legally through the priest system. And this new convert comes to faith in Christ and has to understand what it means that verse 15, he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant. I'm under a a new law, the law of Christ, a new agreement, that's covenant, a new commitment to Christ And so there were sins that I committed under the first covenant that I still wonder about. 
I'm still dealing with. I'm still wondering how am I supposed to deal with those sins even though I've come to Christ and Christ is my savior. I couldn't save myself. I, the spirit of God's opened my eyes to believe in Jesus, but I'm still plagued about some past sins that I didn't deal with under the first covenant system, which by the way, in terms of the time dating of this letter, I believe it's before AD 70 where Rome came in and obliterated and leveled Jerusalem and leveled the temple. So I think during the time of this writing and reading, the sacrificial system was still going on. So they're tempted to kind of reach back and go back there and deal with something the old style way as opposed to trusting in grace and grace alone. A Jew was raised in a system where they understood God's holiness. They don't have our cultural Jesus here of casual relationship and casual friendship with the Lord. They, they wrestled with the fact that if someone errantly handled the uh, covenantal system, the ceremonial system, a priest would go in in an unholy way. That priest could die on Yom Kippur. They would wait on the other side of the curtain to see if he would reemerge after entering into God's presence. So there was a barring of relationship that was, that was a separation that was given by the law and they needed mediators, priests to make that right. And so they're wrestling through that. And so even on a deeper level in their conscience, they're going, how can these sins of my past be operable? How can these things be dealt with in my life? These diseases that are deep in my cellular system and giving me guilt, these issues of the heart that I have felt like I, I don't think there's atonement for something this deep. So how can I overcome the past haunts? Well, isn't this the question that you ask yourselves sometimes? Oh, I've done it again. Okay, here's a black mark that the cross cannot, will not, does not cover. Gone too far. This is outside of the Christian box. And so I'm stuck. I'm stuck. The Holy Spirit, when you come to Christ, shows us how ugly we really are we have like the blood marks of our sin all over us and the uv ray light comes over us and reveals these things that we didn't see before right because the holy spirit's saying oh you thought that was bad because you were measuring that culturally but now you're measuring what you did or that sin past that sin pattern of the past against god's holiness and really now you're struck and you're like oh, oh man i was bad and oh that Sin crops up again a little bit in my heart or it comes out this way or that way like an amoeba. Something gets squeezed in my life and it starts to squirt out. Like, man, how am I going to deal with this? Well, the closer we get to God's holiness, the more of his light shows us our blemishes and the more that our blemishes are revealed to us, the deeper we need to thrust ourselves into the everlasting arms of Christ. And the, the greater we need to understand the bloodshedding that covers all of our sins, right? We do have a place to go with our cares. We do have a place to cast our cares to. And that is at the feet of Jesus under the ceremonial blood, once for all blood that was shed for us at the cross of Calvary. 
The cross covers all of our sins. That's why he's called in verse 15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. He arbitrated, he reconciled our horrible sins of the past. We need to understand that the cross, and you want to write this down or think about it, it's retroactive in its effects. Now, the cross predates us historically. Okay, I get that. We're in the 21st century. You become a believer now, though, your sins that you did when you were 10, 9, 8, 15, 22, 28, if you're an older new convert when you were 30, 35, these matured things that, that were left to your own sinfulness that were maturing and growing, those sins at the time of your conversion are retroactively accounted for by the shed blood of Christ. It, it retrofits. It covers all of those sins. These are not things you need to go back and reconfess or confess for the first time. God covers all of your sins, past, present, and future. There is a transcendence of the cross over your life. The blood of Christ transcends your life. I'm going to prove that to you from Scripture. From scripture Again, look at verse 15, the mediator of the new covenant, so that those, these are new covenant believers, those who are called, this is not generally called, this is efficaciously called. This means he calls you and draws you into his kingdom. Those who are Christians may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that's looking future. That's what you have. That's a status we're going to unpack in a minute. But you receive an inheritance. You were signed, sealed, and delivered for heaven. Why? Why do you look future? Because there is a past accounting for your sins. You can't look future until you realize that your past is taken care of. That's what this is doing. Future grace comes from understanding past grace. Since a death has occurred. A death, not multiple deaths, a victim of victims has given himself to redeem. They've been redeemed from the transgressions, from the infractions of the law committed under the first covenant. It retrofitted. It covered everything from the past. Gone by the cross. Washed. So you're called. You're redeemed. What does that mean? You're released from the obligation to pay anything back. You're redeemed. Your debt is paid in full. It's bought out through a death. Targets the direct need here that these believers were undergoing. That's what verse 15 is doing. It's dealing with them directly, saying the cross, past, present, and future is applying. But this application makes people look future to future grace, and that is the eternal inheritance. And I want to just dare us to look at Hebrews 11 for a second. We're not going to preach this or unpack it, but I want to fly over it fast just to show you that in the Old Testament, Old Testament believers, when they came to faith in Christ, they weren't looking past. They had to all look forward to redemption. Now, they were given at a certain point the ceremonial system, but all these believers that predate the Mosaic law are listed here. There's, there's several listed. 
and they're looking forward to future grace. They're looking to a payment that's going to be made like a credit card that's been paid ahead. They were looking forward to a Messiah as they believed whatever revelation they were given at that time by God. That's Hebrews 11. I mean, look at this, just, just fast. Uh, Hebrews 11, one, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Verse four, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain and was commended. This word commended is used over and over. Verse two, looking back for by it, faith, people of old received commendation. So verse four, he was commended as righteous. God commending him by acceptable, by accepting his gifts. Verse five, by faith, Enoch was taken up so he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him not before he was taken, not before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse seven, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He was saved. Noah was saved through his obedience to revelation given to him at that time. And it goes on by faith. Abraham, he went and obeyed. He received an inheritance, a promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations by faith. Sarah herself received power to conceive. Verse 12 is hilarious. Therefore, one man and him as good as dead. That's just awesome. I mean, we're born descendants as many as the stars of heaven. He's as good as dead. And yet he's still going to be a dad. Unbelievable. These all died in faith. Verse 14, seeking a homeland. Verse 16, a better country. That is a heavenly one. Every Old Testament saint was looking forward to future grace, a future promise as if credit card had been paid ahead. We as New Testament Christians are looking back to a credit that has been paid. Romans 4, we've been counted righteous in Christ. There's a counting language in the New Testament saying that our account is paid, but Having past grace should cause us to relish our forgiveness at a level where we see that we have an inheritance where we're looking future. How do we really apply this and get it down deep in our hearts? I just want to, again, take you through a couple New Testament passages in flyover fashion. Past, present, and future grace. Acts 2, 23. And Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. When did God the Father plan for Jesus to die for our sins? Way back when, in the foreknowledge of God, always in the mind of God. Isaiah 53, prophetically speaking, as if it's happened about Jesus. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, a lamb that was led to the slaughter John 1, 29, John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1, 36, Jesus walked by, behold the lamb of God. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, you were ransomed. Verse 20, he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has been manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 
foreknown, your forgiveness through the Messiah was part of this. In the foreknowledge of God, it transcends time. Your forgiveness does. Revelation 5, 9. All through eternity, worthy are you to take the scroll to open the seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. It's just going to be sung all through heaven, all through eternity. About what was in the foreknowledge of God, what happened in real time and space. And throughout eternity, we're going to talk and sing Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 13, 8, the beast is rebuked in this regard and all who dwell on earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Do you see that? Your forgiven status was always there. I mean, I don't know how far back the foreknowledge of God goes because I'm just finite, right? I don't know how that starts and stops. We're not supposed to figure out the mind of God at that level. God has foreknown you by name, brought you here to this world. He saved the world for all who would believe. And he ransomed a people of God calling you to have an eternal inheritance because your past, present, and future sins are obliterated. We're not in the Presbyterian church this morning, so glory to God, right? Amen? All right, thank you. So how does this apply? Past and present. Colossians 2. If you get into this mindset where the blood of Christ on your behalf transcends time, you understand this. Colossians 2.12, having been buried with him in baptism, when Jesus was baptized and that meaning he died on the cross and was buried in the ground in which you also, you were also raised with him through faith. You were at the resurrection in his heart, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Where did he cancel the record of your debt? Well, in the past. Look at this. This he set aside, your debt record. When? Nailing it to the cross. So the sins you commit tomorrow were nailed if you're in him today. They were nailed. What do you do with that? You get happier as a Christian. Let's blow Anchorage away. It's going to get cold, dark, and grumpy. Let's not do it. At the gas station, right? That's where it happens. That's where it happens in my, my world. Jockeying for a pump. Just give it to them and go, praise God. And then call the cops if something happens. All right. Then there's present and future, Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not just past, not just present, but there's a future idea here. You're already at the right hand of the throne of God with Christ seated there. 
in the mind of God, forgiven. It's beyond time and space. It transcends time. Your forgiveness transcends. This is a truth that we need to grasp. It needs to become precious to us. But verse 15 isn't where this ends. This is just the beginning. The idea here is, is sort of screwed into our minds if we let it with the idea that bloodshedding was costly. It comes at a tremendous cost. First, Christ's bloodshedding was retroactive. Second, Christ's bloodshedding was costly. Costly. What does that mean? It's the idea of this payment happened in time and space, and it was a real payment. It was a real payment. Yeah, the cross is transcendent, and it's eternal, and there's an infinite dimension to this that we can't fully grasp, but we embrace. But then we need to take it into concreteness, time and space, 2,000 years ago. This wasn't a fable. This was an actual event, historical event that took place on your behalf. It's another level of taking the blood of Christ to heart is to ground this in time and space. Look at verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. We're talking about a will like a last will and testament. Can you just catch that concept right away? This is super complicated unless you kind of dig through it. The word will is diatheke. It's the same word as covenant, but the author of Hebrews shifts gears. He does a play on words here in verse 16, and he's using this as an illustration. If you've ever received a benefit from someone in your family who's died, the death has to be established, and then you receive the benefit. That's what the author is doing here. Look at verse 16, or yeah, verse 16, a will is involved. The death of the one who made it must be established. We're talking about death. Death's repeated two times, back-to-back verses, verse 15 and 16. Death, something that brings life through death is what's going on. There's a cause and effect dynamic that something had to happen. A death had to occur. A victim had to be given. Blood had to be shed for this to count. Christ made this will and he made it in eternity past. This is undoubtedly within the Trinity and John three sixteen, where God, the father is sending the son and there's advocacy. First John two, there's an advocate with the father. There's face to face fellowship agreement on this, that when Jesus dies, when that happened, it's established, it's Pharaoh, it's literally born out. Pharaoh means to bear up under. It's born out. It's resolved in force. Look at verse 17. It takes effect only a death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So the death has to be established. It's kind of like a crime scene establishing the victim's death or an, an emergency room. A record of death is established when someone dies on the table. Christ's death, this application is deep to us. Because again, for the old covenant believer, the credit was paid forward. But for the new covenant Christian, for us, we understand that our past sins were dealt with 
by this death retroactively covering us. I remember a dear family member uh, who was dying. And uh, this person was someone who had graciously um, given us some money when we were young in our um, new marriage and and we were going to pay that money back. And the, when the person was known to be dying, we got really aggressive to say, we got to pay that back before the person dies. This person, not knowing that we were thinking that, intuitively understood that we would be upset that we had never paid it back and, and wrote us a note. And the note said, your debt has been paid in full. Never forget that. That's powerful. But that's the power of the cross. Your debt has been paid in full. Full. Wake up with that every morning. Your debt is paid in full. The hymn that now is sung as a children's song, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owe a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Let's try to expand this a little bit more by thinking in terms of not only the cost of sacrifice, the cost of blood that was given, but the cleansing that comes from this cost. You're completely cleansed. And that's what the rest of this paragraph is doing. It's the idea of sacrifice. Look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels in worship. This is a direct reference to the old covenant sacrificial system. Again, we're trying to, the author is here, trying to dig out old covenant believers who've become new covenant believers, trying to dig out their guilt and trying to, protect them from returning back to a ceremonial mindset or ceremonial actions that could threaten their faith. No, keep looking forward here. The train's left the station. You have a new covenant with a new mediator, with a resolved situation that you don't need to resolve on your own. Works don't work, right? Don't try to dig your way out. Trust the gospel. Trust the blood sacrifice. Blood means cost. Blood means bleeding out. It means something is dying. Blood is mentioned six times in these verses, and it's a reflection of Leviticus 17.11, which says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes the atonement by the life. You say, well, is life here talking about our new life in Christ or something else? Well, no, life here is talking about the bloodletting. When blood is flowing out of a person or an animal, the life is going out of it, which again speaks to the cost of an animal. When an animal was sacrificed, it's not dinner. The animal, when it's sacrificed, is payment. When blood is being shed, the animal is given. 
You no longer are possessing the, the animal. You've given the animal in sacrifice. And so the life is flowing out of this animal because it needed to die. There needed to be a payment. And it's a picture of bloodletting that's significant. I was reflecting on how my, my father, who um, was just here this summer, and he was sitting around with um, some of his grandsons, and he was talking about how he came home late from college one one evening and my his mother, my grandma, which aka Meemaw, yeah, I'm from the South originally. It's about gone, but it's still there in Meemaw. Anyway, but she used to move the furniture around all the time. And he was like rolling his eyes going, she always did that. And I went in at night and, or he did, he hit a table, knocked a vase over and cut his arm. And all he heard was splatter sound on the ceiling because his artery had been severed. The life was flowing out of him. Can anyone say tourniquet? Okay, it's a good ending of the story. Tourniquet was on and went to the doctor and sewed him up and then it didn't work and his arm was huge and they saved it. It was all good, but blood is, blood is significant. You have to understand the idea of it. Kent Hughes said, during the thousand plus years of the old covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. So considering that each bull sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood and each go to court, the old covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. During the Passover, a trough was constructed from the temple down into the Kidron Valley for the disposal of a blood sacrificial plumbing system. It's a lot of blood. Everything was covered in blood. Everything was bathed in blood. All these ceremonial payments that were given were symbols or pictures of the blood sacrifice that was to be paid from an old covenant-minded person, from a pre-cross and pre-Jesus mindset. That person was symbolizing the Messiah who was to come. In Exodus 24, this is the reference that the author is giving here, how in verse 18, everything was inaugurated with blood. Everything was covered in blood. The law, when it was given, Moses took a basin of blood and he threw it on everything, all the temple furniture. Everything was dripping in blood and then he threw it on the people. And they were saying, behold, everything in the covenant we will do. We will be obedient. But all of this was bathed in blood because it's a foretaste of our need for sacrifice. Even the, the furniture was covered in blood because it was, it was, there was going to be ceremonies done from that point on to cover sins, at least symbolically. The tabernacle was covered, all tapestries, all sparkling furniture, all dripping in blood to make the point of our need for sacrifice to, again, bring up the price of sin. Sin means death. It means there needed to be a payment. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death and the free gift of God is eternal life. We know there needs to be a payment for sin. I looked up, I won't bore you with this, but um, I looked up how Jews today, because I've always wanted to know this, how they reconcile the fact that the Old Testament law said that there needed to be sacrifices being given in the temple looking to the Messiah. Why don't they sacrifice animals today? So what, what, where did that go? 
And I was reading something, frequently asked questions, do Jews offer sacrifices today? And they don't. And now their understanding is because the temple was obliterated in AD 70 by Rome, they're off the hook. And because there's no temple and the law requires sacrifices to be done there, they can't do it. And some people still do it ritualistically, but not actually killing animals, et cetera, et cetera. And so I asked Brian Overholzer, who's a student at the Master's Seminary, and his wife, who they were both in an overseas um, semester with their college in Israel. And I said, what do they do today instead of offering sacrifices? He said, it's praying. All of the wailing wall prayers, all of the praying is a, a replacement action for the sacrifices. They're sacrificing in prayer. So it's this legalistic Phariseeism, where they have to pray to try to keep themselves right with God, completely missing the point of a cost blood sacrifice. He said that when he went over, he and Elizabeth went over the Atlantic to Israel, the Jews who were on the plane prayed the entire time. They had to pray from takeoff to landing as an act of sacrificial obedience, trying to protect themselves and keep themselves right with God. It's sad, but that's the temptation that the author here is trying to stave off for these Christians. And it's the temptation that we all have to stave off, right? We all have to push away trying to work our way right with God. Works don't work. It's grace that produces our works and our obedience, not in reverse, We're supposed to glorify God because we've been bought with a price. Again, if you look at the text, you know, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took blood, the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet and wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. I mean, this is bringing together several passages actually from Numbers and Leviticus and the account in Exodus to show that everything was dripping. Not everything. It actually says in verse 22, almost everything. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified. That's the grace of the Old Testament. If you were too poor to bring an actual animal sacrifice, you could bring a grain offering. So not everything was purified with blood, but almost everything. But in the gospel, we are purified by the blood of Christ alone. First Corinthians 6, you were bought with a price to glorify God in your body. First Corinthians 7, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Why do you glorify God? Why do you live the gospel? Because you have forgiven yourself? No, it's because... God has forgiven you. Uh, blood is so gross. This summer, I, my kids, some of them went to Bird Creek and they were fishing and we took two cars. I couldn't find my family for a while. We got there and, you know, and we were at the end of the summer at this point. So there's just salmon carcasses everywhere and they kept one fish. Well, the fish was forgotten. We two cars went home, days passed. It's in the cooler. Oh yeah, I'm the only one, right? And so I'm after an elders meeting walking across the house and the cooler's on the side in the grass and I just pick up one side like, oh, I gotta bring this in. Blood spills everywhere. 
then I'm trying to recover it and it's getting on me and it's more and more on the driveway and it's pooling and not a good runoff. And then, I, then I'm like, I just want to go to bed. What do I do? It's bear bait time, you know? And so I quadruple bag the, uh, the cooler. It, it did nothing. These are heavy bag, nothing. Brought it in the garage. The garage is just rancid, awful. So I had to fully commit to get the hose, get Clorox wipes, and just completely saturate everything, right? Saturate, that's all you could do. You know, all that stuff ended up getting put out, you know, to trash um, on the side of our house. But it, it took that full commitment. And that's, that's like the commitment where Christ fully committed to wash away every blood pool, every stench all of the yuck and gross of our lives. It's all washed. Christianity Today put an article together and it was uh, sort of a medical approach to how blood actually cleanses physiologically underneath the skin. Um, You ever woken up where your arm is, you slept on your arm wrong and it's just puffy? I know I'm going long, but this is worth it. It's just puffy and you you can't move it and you try to throw it like that. You ever done that? You know what I'm talking about. And then, and then it starts to tingle and hurt really bad. You're like, man, I wish it would just stay numb. Well, what's going on in there? Well, it's blood rushing back into your arm that's giving relief to your muscles. That's the pins and needles. Actually, underneath the skin, without blood, your muscles are forced to keep working, converting oxygen into energy, and while doing so, producing waste. These are metabolites that are normally flushed away through the bloodstream. The constricted blood flow accumulates metabolite waste that pools in the cells, not being cleansed by the swirling stream of the blood, and the arm pain is the agony of retained toxins. Toxins are like sins in the spiritual cellular level in our lives. But when the blood does flow, these toxins are cleansed and washed away. This is the common physiological experience where our physical bodies are cleansed by our blood. So let me ask, are you in agony this morning? Has the shed blood of Christ flown into your life to wash all of your sin toxins away?